If I have not had the joy to meet you, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Would you open up your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 2? We're going to start in verse 1. So I'm going to give you a few examples of two people who see the exact same situation, but they see it very differently. Two men are in a house surrounded by police and guns. One man knows he is doomed and the other thanks God because he is saved. Two people are watching on election night. Too soon? No? Good. One thanks God for this great gift of salvation to their country. The other curses God for abandoning them and their nation. Two people see a sign in a business that says, Wear a mask, save a life. One person says, I trust them because they are looking out for my safety. The other person says, well, I'm never shopping there again. Something like a star appears in the night sky. Whatever it is, it cannot be explained naturally. We're going to watch two responses to very different responses, and to be quite honest, when we understand the character's context, their responses are fairly unexpected. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, here's how it starts. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, have you ever heard them called magi? That's because the Greek here is the word magi. So magi, wise men, same thing. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So here we meet our two main characters. We have King Herod and we have the wise men, both powerful, both very influential, both deeply religious. And the Magi, these wise men, gained a quick hearing with the king because of who they were. They were advisors and counselors, renowned and respected around the known world to kings and politicians. So I think for us to really get behind what's going on in Matthew chapter 2 and understanding this Christmas narrative, we need to set a little bit of context and do an overview of each of these characters. First, let's do an overview of King Herod. He is king of Judea or king of Israel or also king of the Jews. His area of domain and oversight is all of Judea or Israel. Herod has one large objective, and that objective is to build a dynasty in his name all throughout Judea, no matter what the cost. Let me give you some illustrations. His first wife's father threatened his power, so do you know what Herod's response to this man was? To kill him. Then that wife became a threat to his power. So do you know what his response was for her? He killed her. Then he proceeded to have 10 more wives of whom we don't know all of their fate. The high priest of Israel was a threat to his power, so he killed him. His first son, Alexander, was a threat to his power, so he killed him. His second son, Aristobulus, was a threat to his power, so he killed him. His third son, Antipur II, was a threat to his power, so he 
killed him. Caesar at the time said this, said it is better to be Herod's pigs than Herod's sons. When Herod realized at about the age of 69 years old that his death was imminent, he ordered one of his children to gather all of the uh, prominent men of the city and of his leadership team, if you will, and have them all executed at the time of his death. Thankfully, she did not follow through with it. So let me just ask you this. If you're Matthew and you're writing to a primarily Jewish audience, when you see the name Herod, what is maybe your Jewish reader's feelings toward him? Probably not very great. So let's go to the second group of people. Uh, Let's do an overview of the Magi or the wise men from the East. They were widely respected Persian astrologers from what is modern day Iran. They were fortune tellers, dream interpreters, politicians, well-studied and knowledgeable of sacred writings from various faith traditions, and they were unrelenting pursuers of wisdom. So by Jewish standards, the Magi were some of the most unsavable kind of people. In fact, they would be what you would call the farthest from God, not just spiritually, but also geographically. So in the book of Deuteronomy, here's what happens. You, you get the, the emotional disposition of Yahweh to people like this. Deuteronomy 18, verse 10 says this. Anyone who practices divination, check. Tells fortunes or interprets omens, check. Or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So in the Hebrew vocabulary, abomination is the strongest word of disgust that they could use. So of all of the things that God is angry at, these are the ones that kind of make it to the top also in this list is sacrificing children to false gods. Verse 12 goes on, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So let me just ask you again, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and they see the word magi or wise men. What is their emotional disposition to this group of people? Probably not great. And so converging in the birth of the promised Messiah is a group of pagan astrologers and an evil king who is killing people left and right and doing whatever he can to preserve and save his power. These wise men in verse 2, they speak, and here's what they say. And what they say is actually very funny. So sometimes when you're really familiar with the text, you kind of just have to pause, rise above it, and and just remember that your familiarity is going to blind you to some of the most interesting things right in front of you. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Okay, there are a number of events in Scripture that when I die, I'm going to say, Jesus, could you replay these events? Because I want to see if the way I preach them is actually the way they happened, okay? Here's what I surmise maybe happened. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod's response would be, you're looking at him, bro. (laughs) I'm right here. (laughs) Awkward. Um, Well, that's, this is strange. No, one who was just born... There was, see, there's a star, and that was telling us it was a king, and it's not you. Did you have a son recently, by chance? No? Oh, this is getting more awkward. And then they said, for we saw, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. I, I just love awkward moments like this. You know, I say awkward is awesome, because it is. It's so great. The Lord is always up to something in the most awkward of moments, I'm convinced. 
Let's talk about the star for a moment. <clears throat> this is a weird event. It's new. It has apparently never been seen before. It has caught the attention of these stargazers. As the text unfolds, what you're going to learn about the star is that it doesn't seem to act like other stars. It's actually moving, and it's moving in a way uh, that is very unusual and very clear that something is in control of the star. In fact, the star itself seems to be summoning these wise men to a specific and yet unknown Location. I imagine when they saw the star, they gathered the rest of the Magi and they said, look at this. And then they proceeded to debate about its origins as they opened up holy books to figure out what, what, what religion or faith this actually referenced. All they knew, all they knew is that this is surely from God or the gods. It's interesting. Um, when they show up, they seem to know the ethnicity of the newborn king. You wonder, how do they know this? Maybe it's possible they found in Numbers 24, 17, this really obscure prophetic word that vaguely resembles what happened with the star. Probably not. Maybe. Maybe the Holy Spirit uh, just communicated to them in his own way that they were going to be going to Israel and they were going to find the king of the Jews. Maybe, but the text gives no inclination of that. Maybe, and I think this actually might be the most reasonable, they actually didn't know it was the king of the Jews until they arrived in Judea and then found themselves at the doorstep of the residence of the king of Israel. Now that kind of blows out of your mind, like what's really happening here, but it's all surmising, but it's very interesting. They're trying to figure out who this, who this baby is. So much is unknown about their journey, but here's the one thing that we do know about these Old Testament law-breaking non-Jewish men, they are responding to the summoning call of God. They don't know where it's taking them. They don't know how it's all going to land, but they just, they know that God is calling them and they're following. Now back to Herod in verse three. When Herod the king, I love how they clarify that, heard this, he was <laughs> troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So I see why Herod is troubled. It was a threat to his power. Why do you think all of the rest of Jerusalem was troubled? Well, let's just say, when Herod gets upset, heads roll. People die. You got to also understand some of the political context of this moment in time. Uh, the Jews were known to revolt. And Herod had an authority. His authority was Caesar Augustus. And Herod wanted to keep his life and his job because he had a dynasty to build. And so here's what they knew. If there was a threat of revolt, then, then Herod would go out of his way to make sure he quenched whatever rebellion, wherever he would find it. Now, here's what the Jews are probably scared of. There's a group of zealots and other people who, who are really used to kind of guerrilla-style warfare, just doing things that really inconvenience and hurt the Romans. And so maybe this is their moment. Maybe the promise that the Messiah is going to be born is going to light a fire under these zealots and these rebels, and, and they're going to start revolting against the Roman Empire. Everyone is troubled because they don't know how Herod is going to respond. They do know this. Herod knows there's a possible revolt, and he is going to quench it, whatever the cost. In verse 4, Herod responds. He gathers the Jewish leaders. It says he gathers the chief priests, the scribes of the people, and then he has an inquiry of them. He says, where is the Christ to be born? Where is the Christ to be born? Now, this is actually a really strange moment because he's acknowledging to them that there is a prophetic word. He is telling them, I think your Messiah has been born. Here's this series of events from these wise men and this strange star. And if they tell Herod, 
where the baby is born, they're like giving up the Messiah. They know what Herod is going to do with this information. But they're bought and sold anyways, so what did they do? They did what comes natural, verse 5. They told him immediately, no questions, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet. Go to verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Okay, we have a prophecy, we have Bethlehem, we have a time frame. Why is Herod aggregating all this information? To kill, which is exactly what he's going to wind up doing. All of the children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Now watch this in verse 9. The text says, and behold. Whenever the text says behold, pause. Get your head out of the gutter. Something's going to happen. Focus. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. The star apparently did not bring them directly to Jesus. The star made a stop on their way to Jesus. The star apparently brought them to the residence of King Herod. And now the star has reappeared and it's moving, which has caused some debate as to like the nature. Was it an angel, etc.? Nobody really knows. It's probably a star because that's what the text says. Verse 10 says, When they saw the star, it came back. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The star brought them to King Herod, and they're like, clearly this is not the place we're supposed to be. They find out they're supposed to go to Bethlehem, but the star appears again. Verse 9, behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, and I love this word, until. Now the star has stopped moving at a very specific location until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And these men are about to have their lives changed forever. Do you want to know what happens next? Watch Christmas Eve 2.0. We're going to go to our so what's, and we're going to finish this text in just a few days. But I think right now, actually, before we move on, there's just some really amazing things that we need to pull from this and be reminded of. Here's the first. This Christmas, remember this, God rarely brings people to salvation in a straight line. Expect intentional, divine detours. So before the sermon, if I were to ask you a question, it'd be kind of a trick. I would say, where did, these star take, where did this star take these magi? And your response would have been likely to baby Jesus. False. Inevitably, it did. But first, the star took them to the doorstep of King Herod. And now you have to ask the question, why the detour? And the only reasonable explanation is that when they came to King Herod's temple, they heard from the chief priests and the scribes the prophecy, the word of God, the explanation of what was happening. And with knowledge of the word of God, the star then reappears and then takes them to meet Jesus personally. Detours are designed by God oftentimes so that people can hear the gospel. As, you, as you're thinking about people in your life that you love, that you so badly want to know Jesus, and you're wondering, what is God doing? 
You wonder why is God letting them go here or there and all around. And here's what I found. The, the, the very few people come to Christ in a straight line. Usually the Lord has to take them here. They hear something over here. They get a relationship over here. And all of this is often preparation for them to see, meet, and ultimately believe in Jesus. Detours are designed so that people can hear the gospel. Detours are designed so that hearts are softened. So that by the time they actually meet Jesus for the very first time, their hearts are ready and receptive. I just never underestimate when I think about the people in my life that I want to know Jesus, that God very well may be up to something very intentional. And the pathway he has them on is not my ideal pathway for them, but he is up to something. I want to share a story of a, somebody close to my wife and I. They're missionaries in the Middle East. And... Um, they, were, uh, they had a dream, and in the dream, Jesus came to them and said, walk through the open door, which is kind of weird, and now you don't want to hyper-spiritualize everything, and so they're thinking to themselves, walk through the open door, okay. So the next day, they're in a pretty major city, and uh, there were some friends, and one of the friends says, crazy thing, I had a dream last night, and Jesus says to me, walk through the open door. And the other one says, I had a dream, Jesus told me the same thing. So what does that mean? What door? So they're trying to get to a destination in the city. There was something happening, so they had to take a detour. They went through this pathway, and as they go through this pathway, they kind of get this like, like fuzzy feeling, and then they look, and there's a door just ajar a little bit. And they look at each other, and they say, is that the open door? Like, is that the one? And they're kind of scared because you don't know what's in the open door, right? And so they, <clears throat> they send one of the men through the open door, and he goes in, and there's six Muslim men on their face praying. And he says, oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. And they said, wait, do you know about Jesus? Jesus came to us in a dream and told us to leave the door open because I was going to send somebody to tell you about me. Now, here's my question. Jesus could have saved each one of these men decades before. He didn't. In fact, he's orchestrating this series of events where you're like, why do you do it the way you do it, Jesus? He does it so that he gets all the glory. So that nobody could ever say that this was not Jesus pursuing these men. And in the Middle East, this is just so normal. You meet person after person after person. If they come from the Middle East, here's what they're going to tell you. Jesus came to me in a dream and connected me with somebody who shared the gospel. Now, the irony of this text with the Magi is who shared the gospel with them? Who shared the good news, the meaning of the prophecies? Herod. <laughs> who I guarantee you when you die, you're not going to meet him unless there is some miraculous moment at the end of his life that no historian commented on or wrote about. The chief priests and the scribes who ironically would be key and pivotal and ultimately facilitating the execution of Jesus that Herod failed so miserably at. And that this detour actually brought them into the presence of people who didn't believe really in the core of their hearts the beauty and truth of these prophecies. And yet they heard the word of God. They took it with them. And when they met Jesus, their hearts were prepared because of the detours. I don't know what led to these six Muslim men in this place, in this moment. But I do know it's a great example of you never know what God is up to in the plan, the intentional plan he has to draw someone to Jesus. But here's what I can tell you. He will always get the credit. So what, number two? The wise person pursues truth no matter where it takes them and no matter what the cost. So both the, the wise men 
and Herod were steeped in all different sorts of false religious traditions. The wise men from the East, Herod was a weird, synchronistic version of Judaism and Roman mythology, all used to basically peddle his own agendas. Left him a complete slave to sin. And I want to take a moment, I want to contrast the responses of these two people who come from such false worldviews and religions to the very same events, a star, a prophecy, and Jesus himself. For Herod, truth was a threat to his power. And here, here's what we find. There are so many people antagonistic to Jesus, are there not? And they're antagonistic to Jesus. Uh, I, I think on the surface, many of them just believe he is not who the Bible says he is or who Christians say he is. And that's true, and they're convinced. There's, there's also this other side of, this, of the coin where if somebody really does acknowledge the divinity of Jesus Christ, that changes everything about their life. It changes their narrative of the past. The things they glorified in and reveled in now very well might be condemned. The narrative that they committed their life to up until that very point, they would have to say, I was wrong my whole life about what is true and real about my nature, about who God is and the plan of salvation in the Bible. In fact, what you find is that for many people, the truth about who Jesus is is a fundamental threat to their idols. And for Herod, Jesus was a threat. His number one goal in life was power. And if Jesus at all was who he says he was, he loses the greatest idol of his life. The Magi are so different. I mean, if you went to Herod, it, it would not matter what truth or evidence you showed him. But, but the Magi are different. They actually are, in the most biblical sense of the term, wise. They're not wise in that they know a lot. They're wise in this. They apply the truth. They submit their mind and their life to that which is accurate and true. They were 900 miles away when they saw this star. They were pagan men doing pagan things. God gave them a miraculous sign. They sought after it and they sought understanding. They heard God's word and when it was proven true, believed. Rather than seeing Jesus as an inconvenience, they humbled themselves to worship him. And they obeyed God rather than men like Herod at the risk of their very own lives. What made these men wise? Wise men pursue truth no matter what the cost and no matter what it takes to get it. And when they found it, they submitted to it. There are so many people who know truth. And they do not submit to it. It is not convenient. It smashes up against their idolatry. And I, I just want to take a moment and I want to talk to those of you who um, maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Christ. I just want to encourage you with a couple things. Be like the wise men. Be like the wise men. Today may not be the day where you meet Jesus and you believe he died on the cross for your sins and was resurrected Today may not be the day that you believe salvation is by faith alone and not by works. Like, this may not be the day, but I, I want to challenge you. Search and pray to God or the gods or whatever you believe and say, whoever you are, whatever is real and true, show me truth in who you are. And I'm going I'm to give you a little, like, fast forward here for a moment. If God answers that prayer, he's going to bring you right directly straight to the feet of Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh, who loves you and beckons you. But today might not be that day. So when the day comes that you meet Jesus, I want to actually just give you a moment. I want to challenge you. 
I want to challenge you in that day to confess your sins and believe that Jesus Christ is your God and Savior. I want to challenge you when that day comes to call one of your friends or a pastor that you know and tell them that you have personally decided to trust in Jesus so that they can encourage you and help you and support you. Right now, what I'm describing might be, might be an impossible scenario to you. Men and women, geographically, spiritually, morally, way further away from God than you might be today, have found themselves being summoned by God through various means, and they found themselves at the foot of the cross. And when you get there, I want to just tell you, do not resist. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Church, those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, Christmas is weird. And this Christmas is going to be weirder. I'm going to tell you why. Because usually what you do at Christmas is you invite your friends and your family, maybe your neighbors, and you say to them, would you come to church with me? And I don't don't know if I've ever told you this, but let me tell you my experience on a Christmas Eve service. It is not unusual that 40 to 60% of the people in all of our Christmas Eve services I have never seen before. Christmas Eve is unlike any other service at Village Church. In fact, it's one of the most awkward because usually if I talk to you and I ask you a question, you talk back. On Christmas Eve, it's like, hey, Village Church, crickets. You know, Merry Christmas, crickets. They don't know me. They don't know this place. It's all a little bit awkward for them. And and so because of COVID, we have three services, but they're filled up already. And so a bunch of you are going to be online watching. And so it's already weird enough to say, hey, family member, friend, neighbor, people we're celebrating Christmas with, do you want to come to church with us? And they're like, no, or yes. It's all weird, no matter how you slice it. Now it's going to get weirder because then you're going to be at home and you're going to say, hey, we're watching and worshiping together on Christmas Eve. Do you want to watch with us? And they might say, Not at all. Before, if your family was in town and they didn't want to go to Christmas Eve, right, you could just leave them at home. Now you're going to turn the TV on and you're actually going to sing and you're going to engage because this is what Christians do. We engage God and different holidays and stuff. This is is part of our worship rhythm. Okay. And it could be weird. Awkward is awesome. (laughs) Some of you are like, Michael, we don't like that line and we don't agree. For some reason, Christmas is this really strange time where family feels an unusual freedom to express their disagreements, particularly about religion and politics. And this year, all of that is heightened. You're going to have interesting experiences where you might even just innocently say to somebody in your life, Merry Christmas, and they're going to say Happy Holidays in return, and they're going to do it with a scowl just to make the point known that they disagree with you. This is a very awkward time, and I think there are many Christians who in the past we've treated stuff like Christmas Eve services and holidays and all this stuff almost like we're God and we're responsible to save people. And if we learn something from the Magi, you're not going to save anyone. God is the one who saves, and he is up to something. Your job is to be gentle, loving, kind, and to share God's word with those who are willing to receive it. In fact, sometimes you invite people to Christmas Eve services because it's really an unusually awkward thing for you to do it, but they'll listen to a preacher do it, okay? But we create environments where we have the opportunity to open God's word with them or for them and in front of them, and I want to just challenge you this Christmas. Um, There might be some of you who have to take very different postures than you have in the past because all of the tensions around most things religious and political right now are more heated than they ever have been. And so your challenge is to be loving and patient 
and gentle and kind, never forgetting that our God is one who orchestrates people's salvations at his own pace, never at our pace, amen on that one, right? But at his own pace. And as their hearts are tender to the gospel, you'll notice and you'll be given the opportunity to engage. Be patient, be tender, be calm, because God is at work and God is saving people. 2020 has been this incredible, incredible year where we have just never seen more people searching and interested in God. People are asking questions. Some people's hearts have gotten harder, but many people's hearts have gotten softer. And we want to take advantage of this, not by being bullies, but by being gentle and kind and loving and creating spaces in our life for people to hear the gospel. Ville Church, this could be one of the most fruitful holiday seasons we've ever had. God used, interestingly enough, the Magi's pagan practices to bring them ultimately to salvation. I would never imagine that God would enter into their star reading, which is illegal in Old Covenant law, ultimately to use the thing that is illegal to draw them to himself. And I think this is a beautiful reminder as we celebrate communion. The blood of Christ reminds us that it does not matter how dark the sin, it is powerful enough to cover it. These are men who, according to Old Testament law, should be executed or kicked out of the land. That is, that is how the law feels. In God's eyes, morally, they would be an abomination. And yet the blood of Christ is big enough to cover them. It's strong enough to cover whatever their rebellion is. I cannot tell you how many times people tell me they believe in their head. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose again from the dead. And then here's what they tell me. And it just, I just like wish I could change this in people's brains. They say, I'm too far gone. I don't think God can forgive this one. Yeah, I, that's good for you guys. You're not as bad as I am. And I just want to say, if God can forgive Magi and the Apostle Paul and murderers and thieves, the list goes on and on, surely the blood of Christ is powerful enough to cover your sins. And so maybe you are here today and you have believed this lie. You believe in your head. You like want to get your life right. But uh, if you just only knew what I had done and the life I've lived, could God ever forgive me? And it's like, yes, 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 yes. The blood of Christ is powerful enough to save magi, it can save you. If it's powerful enough to save those who would be an abomination before the Lord, it is powerful enough to save you. And so we're going to celebrate communion in just a few moments. In fact, you can look under your seat. There's a cup with juice and there's a wafer on top. If you just pull off the, uh, the paper, the film on the top, you'll see the bread and the juice there. As we come before the communion table, this is a, a, just a great moment for us to remember that the baby was born to be crucified. And the crucifixion culminated with the resurrection, a validation that God has accepted the payment for anybody who places their faith in, in Jesus. This is an opportunity to remember that no matter how terrible you have been in 2020, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. 2020 is a brand new start. I love this. The mercies of the Lord are new every single day. You might have been the worst human yesterday, and today the mercies 
of the Lord are new for you today. I think some of you, before we take communion, just need to be reminded today is a new day. The blood covers the past, the blood of Christ covers the present, and the blood of Christ most certainly covers all the dumb stuff you have yet to do in the future. There are a few questions that we answer for people to be good hosts um, when we partake of communion. One of them is, what if I come from a different church? Can I take communion with you? And our only requirement is that you have personally trusted in Jesus. Uh, Some of you have kids in the room. Can my kids take communion? Um, If your kids are personally trusted in Jesus and mom and dad, you approve, then definitely. Um, If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, what do I do during communion? Uh, Our simple ask is that you not partake because this partaking is a nonverbal proclamation of of a personal conviction that Jesus is your God and you believe he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And if you're not there yet, we're just happy you're here and nobody will look down on you or judge you. So let's have a a time of of silence. And after that, I'm going to read scripture and then we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus.